Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. It's hard to live in the Bay Area and not notice how many people in our community are living on the streets. And homelessness is expected to get worse because of the pandemic. When he moved to San Francisco's Mission District, our question asker this week, Matthew Schmitz, was shocked by how much wealth exists side by side with extreme poverty. It doesn't seem to make sense. It feels dystopian. My question was, how does homelessness in San Francisco compare to other major cities around the world. Matthew's question won the October voting round. Today on the show, an examination of homelessness globally. We look at how other cities and countries tackle the issue of homelessness and what the Bay Area could learn from other places about how to solve the problem. I'm Katrina Schwartz, and this is Bay Curious. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast 2 at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Here to help us put Bay Area homelessness in context are KQED housing reporters Aaron Baldessari and Molly Solomon. Hey, Katrina. Hey, thanks for having us. It's great to have you. Okay, so Aaron, let's start with you. First off, how did you even set out to answer this question? I mean, how did you choose the places that you were going to compare to the Bay Area? Well, you know, right off the bat, we knew this wasn't going to be an easy question to answer because there is no single universal definition of who counts as being homeless. And, you know, that sounds like a really simple thing to define, but actually it's not. And there are about three different definitions or categories of who counts as homeless. 
The first is someone, the official term is is rough sleepers, someone who is sleeping outside in a tent or in a sidewalk, a place that's not meant for human habitation. The second definition are people sleeping in emergency shelters or other types of institutions where they don't have a place to go home to after they leave. And then the third category are people who are doubled up with friends or family, so couch surfing, basically, or otherwise living in crowded housing. And, you know, different countries really look at these different categories differently. You know, on one end of the spectrum, you have Australia and New Zealand, who have the most expansive definition of homelessness. They basically count all three categories. Japan is at the other end. They basically only count the rough sleepers and also certain people in some institutions. But it's a pretty narrow definition. And the U.S. is somewhere in the middle. So because of this really fundamental difference, you can't line them up all on a chart and compare apples to apples. It's nearly impossible to say whether things are better or worse in the Bay Area. But we did talk to a bunch of people who study this kind of stuff, and we settled on a few places that we thought we could learn a few lessons from here. Okay, so Molly, I get that it's really difficult to compare cities, but it does seem like the Bay Area's homeless population is more visible. I mean, is that right? You know, when we're talking about visibility, if you live in San Francisco, if you live in most big cities in the Bay Area, when you're walking around your neighborhood, when you go to work, you do see a large portion of people that are living outside. And so I think it does feel like there is a lot of homelessness here, in part because San Francisco is a small city. It's just 46 square miles. So it is really concentrated. You know, if we look at the numbers in San Francisco alone, there are 8,000 people who are homeless. 5,000 of those people are unsheltered. And it's even further concentrated in a few areas, a few neighborhoods like the Tenderloin and the Mission, where our question asker lives. And if we look across the whole Bay Area, there are more than 35,000 people experiencing homelessness. And all of that was counted before the pandemic. And I think it's even more jarring when we put it up against the incredible wealth that also exists in this region in the Bay Area. I spoke with Leilani Farha. She's the former United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing. And she's traveled all across the world, including to San Francisco. And she says the kind of homelessness that she saw here, these sprawling tent cities, people cooking on these camp stoves with no electricity, little access to running water, It reminded her of the places that she had been that were much poorer in India or parts of Brazil. I do find the street visible homelessness to be quite acute in San Francisco, quite startling. That's definitely not a comparison to be proud of. But other U.S. cities have big homeless populations, too. Why are there so many more encampments here? The first answer to that question is really that the Bay Area and, in fact, all West Coast cities have really high housing costs. And we know that as rents rise, so does homelessness. Weather is another factor. I mean, it's just more feasible for people to be outside on the West Coast than it is in the Northeast, for example. But, you know, to your point, Katrina, um, other cities in the country do have really high housing costs. Take New York City, for example. You know, you do see people in New York City who are sometimes sleeping on streets or on the subways, but there aren't these big encampments that you see in California. And a big reason for that is something called the right to shelter. The right to shelter came out of a lawsuit that was filed in the 1970s. Basically, this young lawyer befriended a person experiencing homelessness and ended up suing the state, arguing that a clause of the New York state constitution requires the state to provide care for the poor and needy. And it meant that they had to provide shelter for the homeless. And he actually won. 
wow, so that's a big victory. Did that change the picture for folks in New York City who didn't have access to affordable housing and who maybe had become homeless? It was a huge victory. You know, it really established a basic right to having a roof over your head and a bed to sleep in at night. And this law is a big reason that we don't see street homelessness in New York City to the same level that we do in the Bay Area. But I think a really important thing to think about is that these shelters are temporary. And, you know, a lot of the times you have limits on how long you can stay or maybe you have to leave during the day. Plus, it's really hard to get into permanent housing. So people just cycle between shelters. It's really not solving the issue of homelessness. And the other thing that's happened is it's led to these unintended consequences that the city is still dealing with. One of the people we spoke to was Dr. Deborah Padgett. And she's a researcher at New York University. She said some of these early shelters were pretty massive. They would take over a whole armory and then fill it with up to 900 men and beds and a huge open floor. And that became sort of intolerable. Over time, the shelters did evolve. They had these things called cluster apartments, which are kind of like dorms with shared kitchens and bathrooms. But today, you know, New York City has this vast, vast network of shelters. And Paget says, you know, the original intention of that was a really good one. It was based on a premise of providing humane services to homeless people, but it was also based on a premise that homelessness was going to go away. The thing is, though, homelessness hasn't gone away. When you look at 2021 in New York City, it's at record highs. There was something like 56,000 people sleeping in city shelters this year. That's almost seven times more than the number of people experiencing homelessness in San Francisco, you know, based on 2019 numbers, which is the latest data we have available. At the same time, New York is spending more than $3 billion each year on homelessness. And again, to compare, San Francisco is planning to spend nearly $600 million this year. But New York City has to spend that much money because of this legal right to shelter. And Paget says that's up to this whole shelter industry. And I call it an industry because there are dozens and dozens of nonprofits that get millions of dollars a year in contracts to run shelters. And so you have many jobs, thousands and thousands of people whose jobs depend on homelessness. And so you have this kind of endless cycle. Wow. Okay, well, it sounds like New York has its own unique set of challenges that we don't necessarily want to replicate here in the Bay Area. Is there anywhere else in the world that's doing a better job to alleviate homelessness? You know, the one place that people kept kept bringing up over and over again was Finland. Like New York City, Finland used to have this enormous sprawling shelter system in the 1980s. But, you know, it didn't work. So in 2008, four people got together, got in a room. Uh, I feel like I'm setting up a joke here. It was an activist, a politician, a social scientist, and a priest. And they got into this room, and the whole goal was they've got to come out with a plan to solve homelessness. What they ended up coming out with was essentially this principle of housing first, this stable and permanent home as soon as possible. And then that was, you know, not some reward that came later after you got your life together. It was something that you started with. It was the beginning, the foundation that you needed to really get everything back on track. That's pretty interesting. I know in the U.S. there's often a lot of requirements people have to meet to get into housing, like they have to be clean and sober or be on medication for mental health issues, that kind of thing. How does Finland handle those kinds of issues that often come along with homelessness? 
they see it as a really simple thing. If people are homeless, you give them a home. Yuha Kakinen is someone that I spoke with. He is the CEO of something called the Y Foundation, and he was actually one of those four people that got in a room to to figure out this problem.、Um, he was the social scientist, and you know, this is basically how he put it. It's not rocket science at at all. So the solutions are are simple. We start with the housing. That's the only common thing with all homeless people that they lack a home. People have very different problems. They have different needs, but Everybody has this common need to have a secure place that they can call their own home. That's actually really refreshing that they just saw a problem and gave it a simple fix. So, if we were to visit Finland, what would we see today? I mean, what does this housing actually look like? You would see almost no homeless people living on the streets of Finland.、Um, very few people would be panhandling. Um, I mean, it's pretty remarkable. They've essentially eradicated what they call rough sleepers. Those are people who live outside on the streets or in tents, and they're the only EU country where homelessness numbers have actually gone down in recent years. They do believe that they're going to be on track to end homelessness entirely by 2027. And you know, it's it's really interesting because it's not just about getting people off the street and getting them into housing, but they've also had to build a ton of new housing. You know, thousands of apartment building units. It's across the country. A lot of that is in, you know, the big city of Helsinki.、Um, but these are permanently affordable housing. It's a thing that they call social housing, and they are very good quality. That's the special thing with the Finnish social housing. If you go around in the housing area in Helsinki, you can't make the difference which one is private housing and which one is social housing. And for the past thirty years now, the Y Foundation, which is Yuha's nonprofit, has become the fourth largest landlord in the entire country of Finland. And you know what's interesting is that there's no time limit for how long people can stay there. Some people could actually be renting out these rooms for the rest of their lives. That's really incredible, but it does kind of sound like an extension of the many other social benefits that we know a lot of Scandinavian countries have. And it makes me wonder: Is this just a huge investment from the government? Yeah, there is a definite investment from the government. I mean, in Finland, it's about three hundred fifty million euros that they've been spending on this housing first model since it began in two thousand eight. So Finland has made it a financial priority. But you know, just to interject there, I think what's important to note is that that's actually not that much when you think about how much we spend on homelessness in the U.S. You know, again, to go back to San Francisco, for example, the city is proposing spending nearly six hundred million dollars just this year to address homelessness. Finland argues the policy actually pays for itself. There was a recent study that came out, and it showed that housing one chronically homeless person saves taxpayers around fifteen thousand euros a year. You know that normally would be spent on emergency room visits, sitting in jails. So I think there is a definite cost benefit here. So it sounds like part of Finland's success was that they came up with a plan that they've been working on for decades. It's this like consistent, focused effort. How are they able to do that? Well, they made it a national priority, which means that everyone, no matter the political party, is committing to housing first long term. And there are a lot of reasons why something like the housing first policy might be more successful or even easier to implement in a place like Finland. First of all, it's a smaller country. It's got a population of about five and a half million people total. I mean, that's less than the entire Bay Area. 
And, you know, like you mentioned earlier, Scandinavian countries and other places in Europe, there is a stronger social safety net there. There's free health care. The country pays for your education. There are more rent subsidies. So I think those are the major differences there. But I, I think there is still a lot that we can take away from Finland's approach to housing first. Honestly, the world you're describing is really hard to imagine in the American political context. I mean, there they like have all their political parties on the same page about prioritizing investment in this, whereas here in the U.S. it seems like our political parties can't agree on anything. There they have a lot of social support. Here we just keep cutting those services. So in some ways it just feels like we don't have some of the really basic building blocks that Finland had to tackle this problem. So what can we take away from Finland? Well, I think there are some basic principles that we can start with. Leilani Farha, who we heard from earlier, she's the former United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing. She said there are two things countries must do to make progress on significantly reducing homelessness. The first thing is you're going to need political will. And, you know, this is political will that's going to last for a long time so that we can actually see the effectiveness of some of these policies. Second thing, we need to get to the root causes of why people are becoming homeless in the first place. That's very, very important because there's no point in allowing the creation of homelessness to go on and on and on and then trying to solve it. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. You won't ever solve it. Well, the good thing is that I think a lot of people in San Francisco, including our question asker, Matthew, want to do something about homelessness. Nobody likes seeing people suffer every day on their streets. And I think a lot of people are at a loss for how to do this. So I guess I'm just curious, are we seeing any positive signs either locally or in the U.S. about how we might sort of move forward in improving the situation here? Yeah, I mean, it's not all doom and gloom. I think there's a lot that's already happening right now. You know, first off, President Biden was inaugurated and he signaled very early on that he would be taking a radically different approach to housing and homelessness, starting with declaring that housing should be a human right, which is not something that we've heard from any administration since FDR. He's proposing putting a lot more funding into preventing homelessness by expanding rental assistance vouchers and also putting a lot more money toward building new permanently affordable housing. And, you know, in California, the state launched a pretty big program during the pandemic called Project Home Key that's built 6,000 new units of housing in a really short time span and at a cost that was much lower than what we typically see for this type of housing. And, you know, that's going to produce some real results in San Francisco and Oakland and the rest of the Bay Area. And of course, that's just a tiny, tiny fraction of the amount of housing that we need to build to house everyone who is experiencing homelessness right now. But, you know, it's a start. Okay. Well, thank you so much for all of this great research. I learned a lot. Thank you. Thanks so much. We learned a lot, too. <laughs> Reporters Aaron Baldessari and Molly Solomon are the co-hosts of Sold Out, a KQED podcast all about local housing issues. Check out our show notes for a link to it. Bay Curious is produced by Susie Racho, Katie McMurrin, and me, Katrina Schwartz. Extra help this week from Erica Kelly, Kiana Mogadam, and Jessica Placek. Our show is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. Catch you next week. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? 
Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hi there, I'm Randa Dilfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.